You're listening to Mark Power's Waterford History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of my Waterford History Podcast. I will be returning to the Spanish Civil War a little bit later on, but with the anniversaries that we had this year, I thought I'd better put out this one. This is uh, Waterford and the Great War, which is the first history documentary I did for WLR back in 2006. And it's a fairly broad sweep of Waterford and how it was affected by the First World War. So there's stuff in here about Gallipoli, about the sinking of the Formian and Conning Beg. There's a bit in here about 1916, uh, the early battles of the First World War, the Battle of the Somme and so on. It features, amongst other things, uh, family members of people who fought in the First World War, including my own dad, who died three years ago. So it's nice to hear his voice again, kind of an outstanding Waterford accent there as well. I'm very proud of that. Also, a lot of primary documents as well. I remember at the time cutting out a lot of those primary documents, but there's still quite a lot in here. Um, so it just kind of underlines, I think, in terms of the local press and the library, just how much primary documentation you can get uh, on this topic. Um, and it's well worth looking into for anyone who is interested in that kind of thing. There's local historians in here as well, including the late Jack O'Neill. Uh, and there's also a couple of other historians who I want to highlight. Uh, Terence Denman, who wrote a history of the 16th Irish Division back in 1991. Um, I'm tempted to say before it was fashionable to do so. I think when I spoke to him in 2006, I didn't quite appreciate how groundbreaking that book uh, he did was. Um, and uh, and it's very well done as well. So he's on there. And also Gary Sheffield, who is, um, for me, one of the best historians of the First World War. I was delighted to get, him, get a chance to speak to him on this. And uh, he is one of those historians who... Uh, tries to look at the First World War from, he tries to move away from the sort of Wilfred Owen um, futility of war perspective. Not that he would disagree with that stuff, but just, I suppose, to try and look at things like um, what the British Army did well in the First World War and what maybe the point of it was. And, uh, and, and, and he tends to question the absolute idea of futility in the First World War. I just wanted to get him on because I suppose he, he represented maybe a slightly more modern view of the war than what might be typical or what might sit in, in, in popular consciousness, if you like. Having said that, you know, he was very critical in this uh, documentary about an awful lot of what the British Army and the British government did in the First World War. And it'd be, it'd be hard not to but um, both of those uh, interviews uh, Terence Denman and Gary Sheffield had put out on their own uh, after the first after the two episodes of Warfare and the Great War but the first thing I'm putting out here is episode one starts in 1914 and takes us to 1916 so I hope you enjoy You're listening to Mark Powers Waterford History Podcast When I was young, like everyone else, I think, we didn't talk about it. We didn't interest it really, you know. And I knew like he had been in the war. Somehow or other, we, we never learned much about it, like, you know. It was only the late years from before he died, like, that he started talking about it, you know. Well, I come from Radfadden Village, and uh, we lived in uh, ex-soldier houses, and there was 30 ex-soldiers up there. Like, but 
the funny thing about it, they never really spoke about the war, you know, because they had such a hard time out there that they never tell you much about it. There's only three of us in the house. And I know all these pictures are on the wall and certificates, but this this stuff, no. I didn't know what that for. No one, no one to tell. Even me uh, mother's people. They never, me aunts and uncles, they never said nothing. They didn't speak about it at all. They wanted to forget it. It was so horrendous. They, they saw so much um, evil, absolute evil. We asked him that over the years. He said, someday I'll tell you, he said. In the summer of 1914, Ireland stood on the brink of civil war. Unionists and nationalists were arming themselves to resist or defend the passing of the Home Rule Act. With the army threatening to mutiny, journalists from all over the world were reporting on a story that threatened to bring down the British government and undermine Europe's oldest parliament. Then on June 28th, an Austrian prince was murdered in the Balkans by a teenage Serb nationalist. Five weeks later, Europe was at war. In Ireland, the Home Rule Act was suspended, civil war averted for the time being. The journalists left. On the night Britain declared war, the man responsible for securing the Home Rule Act, the MP for Waterford, John Redmond, told the House of Commons that the passing of the Act would guarantee Ireland's support for Britain in the coming conflict. In past times, when this empire has been engaged in these terrible enterprises, it is true that it would be the utmost affectation and folly on my part to deny that the sympathy of nationalist Ireland for reasons to be found deep down in centuries of history, have been estranged from this country. But allow me to say that what has occurred in recent years has altered the situation completely. The coming war would see thousands of men from Waterford fight in the trenches, 750 of whom would never come home. By 1918, 500 people in the city were making munitions for the war effort, under the direction of the munitions minister, Winston Churchill. The war would plunge Waterford into mourning, with the city's worst maritime disaster. Waterford's MP would lead the Irish war effort, and in the process help destroy his own party and its political vision. The feats of Waterford soldiers would be celebrated, and later forgotten. Coming from where he came, there was a lot you know, in Barrick Street, Trinity Square, all those little lanes, like John Condon, the youngest chap to get killed, like he was from up around that direction. Yeah. So it was sort of traditional. This was a military town. 
they're married into the local people. But these are these are the regular army professions. And uh, there's a lot of names going around the water now you wouldn't hear anywhere else. Really English names. There was a taciturn sergeant from Waterford who was conversant with the intricacies of higher mathematics. There was an ex-divinity student with literary tastes who drank much beer and affected an obvious pretense to gentle birth. A national school teacher. A man who had absconded from a colonial bank and a few decent sons of farmers. John Lucy, Royal Irish Rifles. The army that had won Britain her empire in the 19th century had always included a particularly large Irish contingent. It was a central part of the fabric of life in Waterford, as local historian Jack O'Neill and Waterford's British Legion representative Sean Murphy explain. They had, they had two barracks here. They had one in Barrack Street on the, on the site of Cathedral's Avenue. Only the wall of it remains now going down Blake's Lane. Uh, it faced west where all the um, attacks were expected to come, which was built in 1813, in around the, the Napoleonic Wars. It was a cavalry and artillery barracks. The one farther down in barracks was built in 1899, that's opposite Mountstein School, and that was an infantry barracks. So you had two barracks, so you had a, you had a huge turnover in so far as wages was concerned. That was all spent in the city, of course. You had about 1,500 British troops here. When, for instance, uh, the British decided to close down their military barracks here, I mean, there was no shortage of good nationalist mayors and such like rowing in to persuade the government not to uh, move the forces out because the forces gave a lot of employment. Uh, they put a vast input into the uh, local economy not to mention their social life, you know, their involvement in games, in music, local military bandmasters, I would suggest, would have been instrumental in establishing Barrack Street Band. Uh, the local sporting clubs would have made use of the facilities that the military had to develop the games. Uh, and a more light-hearted side, and this is part of my own experience, you know, the local girls would have picked up husbands readily and this, this would have been powerful, of course, in any garrison town. Recruiting was brisk during the week in Waterford and large numbers of young men were daily being registered at the military barracks. There are several establishments whose staffs have been reduced owing to reservists leaving to join the colours. It was noticed at the Board of Guardians meeting on Wednesday there was a falling off in the numbers of those who were known as ins and outs, some having been called out as reservists and others finding employment in leading horses to the depots. It is stated that three shillings was given to each man bringing four animals each journey. Some of the men made four trips and a good day's wages was earned in this way. The Monster Express, August 1914. In the 1890s, Waterford Corporation had given the freedom of the city to Lord John Roberts from Newtown for his various victories in the name of Queen and Empire. But by the time of the Boer War, some people had begun to question whether Irishmen should join the British Army at all. The attitude of John Redmond's party to the army before the war was more complicated. Historian Terence Denman 
who has written extensively on the service of the Irish in the war, explains. But they took a very interesting attitude. They were technically against recruitment, but they didn't really make it a big issue in their party platform. Individual Irish MPs occasionally spoke out against recruitment, uh, but the trouble with the Irish party is they were particularly proud <laughs> of the achievements of Irish soldiers. Uh, I think they understood um, that uh, whatever their thoughts on this, there would always be boys who through poverty, adventure, family problems were going to join the army. And interesting, in Parliament, the Irish Parliamentary Party went to great efforts to make sure that the troops were treated properly. Uh, that they were allowed to wear their shamrocks on St. Patrick's Day and they would jump immediately at any suggestion that Irish troops weren't being treated fairly. So there was that very strange attitude, I think. Our greatest hero in Waterford is Thomas Francis Mayor, correct? I don't think anyone will argue about that. But he came from a riotous family. His brother was commander-in-chief of the artillery barracks at the top of Barrack Street, British colonel. And here's one from the First World War, December 1915, we have received from Captain Henry Mayer, nephew of Thomas Francis Mayer, a letter containing Christmas greetings and sent from somewhere in France. He states his regiment has been ordered to a very unhealthy spot in the firing line, and he further states the weather is pretty awful and that the Hun is really a Hun. While testifying our loyalty by discharging our duty faithfully and conscientiously, we never can, nor never will, forget, in this supreme struggle, when the mighty nations of Europe are engaged in deadly combat, that we are Irishmen, and as Irishmen we must live up to a tradition. We are also British soldiers, proud of the name, and throughout all our battles foremost consideration is to add more lustre to the name of Aaron. Always remembering that the glory and honour of the Empire depends largely on the men in the field. Corporal Michael O'Mara of Carrick and Shore serving with the Irish Guards, October 1914. Most European countries went to war in 1914 with huge armies assembled by conscription, but Britain, protected by the Channel and the Royal Navy, had a relatively small army of volunteer professionals, men recruited from the poorer parts of the country, whose job it was to police the empire. Professor Gary Sheffield of King's College London is a leading authority on the First World War. I think the British Army actually had more combat experience than any other army in the world at that time, any other army in Europe anyway, because actually they were fighting all over the globe in northwest frontier of India. The Boer War, of course, had been fought just 15 years before. Trouble was, they were practicing a very different sort of war than the one they actually came up against in 1914. So it's questionable how much of advantage it really gave them. Mademoiselle from Armandville to you Sing it with all your heart and soul And see everyone ride up the pole Mademoiselle from Armandville Most professional soldiers from Waterford served with the Royal Irish Regiment, based in Clonmel. In October 1914, it fought at the First Battle of Ypres when the German army attempted to break through to the Channel ports. On the 20th of October 1914, the regiment was surrounded and wiped out. The British came very, very close to being defeated 
at the, the first Battle of Ypres in end of October, November 1914, really because they almost ran out of men. In fact, one of the lessons that Douglas Haig took from this battle, because he was the commander of the, of the British forces on the ground, was you should never give up throwing attacks forward, because he was well aware if the Germans had persisted with their attacks around Ypres, the, the British army probably would have been beaten, simply because they would have run out of men to fill the gaps. Now, whether that was a, a good lesson or a bad lesson for him to learn is another matter, but it's a lesson he certainly did take away. It's not an exaggeration to say that the old BEF, in all intents and purposes, actually no longer existed by the end of 1914. The reinforcements that were coming out tended to be pre-war reservists, sometimes not of the same quality. There's one place now in, in France, I think you call it Etreau or something, Etreau, a village where they, they stood in Fort Lake, you know, while the retreats were going on, and they held up the, the Germans long enough to, to get back. But they were wiped out there. And they're still they're buried there in a, in a little um, a kind of a wood. And as a matter of fact, the Germans put a, a memorial up to them. Then they used to have this uh, kind of, I don't know, apple gas, tear, a different kind of gas they had. Uh, my father, now he was gassed. But he used to go to Dublin every few years. A kind of a groat used to come in his throat. Reservists filled the ranks of the Royal Irish Regiment, and it was back in the line by the time of the Second Battle of Ypres in the spring of 1915. There, at Mousetrap Farm, the regiment was wiped out again, in the battle that claimed the life of boy soldier John Condon. Dr Jim Stacy of Dungarvan has compiled a list of all the Waterford men killed in the Great War. He describes what happened at Mousetrap Farm. Yeah, the Germans were very good in technology, uh, in some ways uh, advanced from the Allies. And they began their gas attacks in uh, some months before May of 1915. And this particular battle began uh, with uh, four in the morning with a huge cloud of green stuff coming in from the east. The wind must have been from the east. It was a nice sunny morning. And some sections of the front, uh, they realised that the Germans were coming and just opened up with machine guns in t- into the into the gas cloud and that seemed to stop the Germans advance but in the area of Mostaf farm uh, they didn't do that and uh, out from the clouds of gas then came the German soldiers with the gas masks on and uh, they made short work unfortunately of the Royal Irish Regiment in the trenches facing them. I think we need to put the introduction of gas into context because the First World War was a war in which there were a lot of technological innovations. Gas was one among many but gas was seen as particularly shocking and it says something about the psyche of human beings. Uh, One might argue it's no more shocking to be killed by high explosive than it is to be gas but unless people do tend to see gas as being something as morally reprehensible as opposed to merely vicious and destructive. in Turkey. There was huge casualties and they're getting off the boats. They get off at different beaches around the coast, small coves and casualties were tremendous because it was well fortified, you know, well fortified. Well, my father said, like, he said the Turks were fantastic fighters. 
Ze was tof. Je had die kotje in Bitsley. Voor je door Poors gaan, stond je hoorn. By 1915, it had become clear that victory on the Western Front would require a far bigger army than Britain at that time possessed. A plan was developed to shorten the war by using the Royal Navy and a small army force to attack Germany's ally Turkey in Gallipoli. The date of the attack, April 25th, is now commemorated as Anzac Day, a national holiday in Australia. However, the heaviest casualties on that first day were suffered by two Irish regiments, the Royal Munster Fusiliers and the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. We landed here before daybreak on the 25th of April, covered by our naval guns, and it was a day never to be forgotten. The dubs landed in boats, but we monsters had to land on both sides of the River Clyde, which was beached, and dense through lighters and out, even though the water was waist deep. We were met by shell, machine gun fire, and rifle fire from both sides, but after a few hours we arrived on terra firma. We lost heavily, but the Dublin suffered most as they jumped out of the boats when the enemy opened fire. Some got wounded and then drowned, while others were shot dead outright. However, by 4pm we were firmly established on the Gallipoli Peninsula and we shall remain until we drive the Turk from Europe. Sergeant Frank Crow of Kappa Quinn, serving with the Royal Munster Fusiliers. I could see the landing was held up. The River Clyde was fast ashore, but the lighters ahead of her were not in the right position and gaps occurred. These lighters were full of corpses. The beach and the water close to the shore were strewn with bodies. It was an appalling sight for us to look down at from our safe position in the air. The sea for a distance of about 50 yards from the beach was absolutely red with blood, and a horrible sight to see. Commander Charles Sampson, 3rd Squadron, Royal Naval Air Service. Well, I think the Gallipoli campaign was never likely to succeed. I mean, some historians, and certainly Winston Churchill argued that this was the great missed opportunity for the First World War. I I, I don't buy that, frankly, simply because they were being asked to do too much, to ask the Navy to force its way through the Dardanelles, the army to land on the Gallipoli Peninsula and and clear the the coastal defences, which is what the Gallipoli campaign was intended to do, and then for this force to go to the Turkish capital, Constantinople, and force it into surrender. Well, it's I think it's utterly unrealistic. The troops attacking off the River Clyde, and for that matter off of the the boats of the the other beaches as well, had very little chance. The fighting at Gallipoli, just a few miles from the recently excavated city of Troy, became an epic struggle which fascinated the public. The soldiers on the ground developed a particular respect for their Turkish enemies, often entrenched less than ten yards away. For some reason he admired them, but he said they were great soldiers. He always said they must have wasted less ammunition than any army in history. <laughs> because it were all deadly shots. Put your head up, he said, and you're gone. They were more guerrilla fighters than regular army. But they were pretty good at it. We were continually fighting for 14 days and then had seven days rest from the 9th of May. We came back yesterday from the trenches after 72 hours there and we go in again on Wednesday the 17th to relieve the Gorkas. The Turks' trenches are only 100 yards from ours and when their bullets whiz over our heads we signal a miss with a shovel or a pick and they do likewise. 
we do have some humour between us at times. Sergeant Frank Crow. I think there was a degree of satisfaction with what was achieved on the grounds of, okay, we may not have won the battle, may not have achieved our aims, but at least we fought very well. And that's, if you like, that's redolent of a very sort of British amateurism of that part of the war. And it doesn't really compensate for the fact that a lot of lives were lost in a failed uh, venture. In fact, Gallipoli is one of the few clear-cut defeats suffered by the British Empire in the First World War. In November 1915, Lord Kitchener judged the Gallipoli campaign a waste of men and material. The peninsula was evacuated at the end of the year. You're playing cricket and every kind of game. At football, golf, and polo, you men have made your name. But now your country calls you to play your part in war. And no matter what it calls you, we can love you all the more. So come and join the forces of your father's before. Oh, we don't want to lose you, but we think you ought to go for your king and your country. After the Germans came close to victory in the late summer of 1914, it became obvious that Britain would need a huge national effort to expand the army. At first, John Redmond committed the Irish volunteers only to the defence of Ireland in the case of a German invasion. But with the situation in France becoming critical in September 1914, he finally made the decision to tell Irish men to join up. The interests of Ireland, of the whole of Ireland, are at stake in this war. This war is undertaken in defence of the highest principles of religion and morality and right. And it would be a disgrace forever to our country and a reproach to her manhood and a denial of the lessons of our history if young Ireland confined their efforts to remaining at home to defend the shores of Ireland from an unlikely invasion and to shrink from the duty of proving on the field of battle that gallantry and courage which has distinguished our race all through history. I say to you, therefore, your duty is twofold. I am glad to see such magnificent material for soldiers around me. And I say to you, go on drilling and make yourself efficient for the work, and then account yourselves as men, not only in Ireland itself, but wherever the fighting line extends, in defence of right, of freedom, and religion in this war. It was a gamble, but on the other hand, I think it was a gamble he had to take, because if Redmond had stood aside from the war, I think the, uh, the, the attacks on the Irish as being selfish and uh, uninvolved and not worthy of home rule, which had been passed obviously just before the war broke out, uh, would have been uh, a very significant political factor. So it was a gamble, but I think in, in, in some ways it was a gamble he had to take. But it was a gamble to pay off that he really needed a short war and for the, um, and for the British to keep their promise. The longer the war went on, 
the more it looked like home rule was being put on the um, the back burner, uh, I think he realised, and probably the uh, the Irish people began to realise that it, uh, it it had been a mistake, possibly. The potential divisions created by Redmond's call were revealed at Dungarvan Urban Council as early as September 1914. We, Dungarvan Urban Council, desire to convey to Mr John Redmond MP, as leader of the Irish Party, our appreciation of the success which has resulted from his efforts in having the Home Rule Bill passed after years of struggle and work in the English House of Commons. You ought to express an opinion as to the desirability of Mr Redmond's recruiting for Lord Kitchener's army for sending recruits to the front. The influence of John Redmond was considerable in Waterford, as Sean Murphy explains. So the Redmond family was obviously very, um, very important in Waterford and Wexford. And with John Redmond's decision that the Irish volunteers should enlist, one would have found that a majority of the membership of the Irish volunteers locally would have enlisted uh, with the support of the church and state and the families. As, um, you know, at that time in history, let's face it, the majority of of people would have supported the idea that the Nationals should, like their counterparts in the North, enlist. And John Redmond felt that by encouraging Irish people to join the army, uh, that it would bring about home rule sooner and more surely. And that was one of the factors which encouraged large numbers of Irish people to join the British Army. However, for many, poverty and a sense of adventure, not politics, were the main reasons for joining up. For example, um, Michael Healy, whose nephew now lives in Dungarvan, at the time was working in the coal mines in, in Wales. And when war broke out, he probably figured that a soldier's life was a bit more attractive than working down in the coal mines. So that would have been uh, a typical sort of reason for uh, uh, joining the army. They were talking in, in the stables one day about this, you know. And some of the fellas said, I think I'll join up, you know. I said, oh yeah, yeah. he was only about 24 or 5 or something, you know. So, there was a recruiting band that came along and the lads would go down. So they joined up there and then. There was absolutely nothing here. And he was always a great reader of geography, history. He said that this was one way I would go out and I'd volunteer for the Middle East, then I see countries I'm interested. At 70 years of age, he had no interest in politics, and he just wanted to get out. He said he'd never get it. Promised them a job. Go into the army knowing you'd be paid so much. Shouldn't have done, I think it was. Go into the army, you're paid, your wife would be paid so much, she'd get money while you were away. And uh, if you have a large family and your poverty is stricken and there's a regular wage you want to come in, it looks very attractive. Well, at that time, there was no work in Ireland. Everyone was poor. Then you had Captain Red- Redmond's father coming over and telling him how great it was to fight and then being promised houses for your families and all that. And then the Irish... We're, we're that kind of a breed like 
that we kind of like fighting. By early 1915, Ireland was in the midst of a major recruiting campaign, one of the central features of which were public appearances by Irish war heroes. In the summer of 1915, Victoria Cross winner Michael O'Leary appeared at City Hall in Waterford. Mr. High Sheriff, ladies and gentlemen of Waterford City, I want to thank you very sincerely for the kind reception you have given me here this afternoon. It is more than what I expected. I, I have only done my duty as a soldier should do. I feel very proud to have rendered such service to, to my king and country. It, it was only my duty. I will ask one thing today, and that is to respond to the noble call, your king and country needs you. We want men, and, and more men. If you do not come, you, you will have to come, and that's about it. You can take it one way or, or the other. If you don't come, you, you will have to come. I, I thank you for your for your kind reception. These are some of the things that appeared in the, the newspapers at the time. Uh, God save Ireland. When you're really saying these words, do you really mean them? Since the war began, what have you done to make them a reality? If you're an Irishman between 19 and 40 years old and physically fit and not already serving your country as a sailor, a soldier or working in a munitions factory, there's but one way for you to help save Ireland from the Germans. You must join the army and learn to sing God Save Ireland with a gun in your hand. Join today, God Save the King, God Save Ireland. That is bullshit. To the young women of Ireland, is your best boy wearing khaki? If not, don't you think he should be? If he does not think that you and your country are worth fighting for, do you think he is worthy of you? Don't pity the girl who is alone. Her young man is probably a soldier, fighting for her and our country, and for you. If your young man neglects his duty to Ireland, the time may come when he will neglect you. Think it over, then ask your young man to join an Irish regiment today. Five reasons why Irishmen should join the army. One, the country is engaged in a just war. Two, we were pledged to defend the sacred rights and liberties of Belgium. Three, had we not struck a blow for Belgium, our name would have been disgraced among the nations of the world. Four, if the Germans came to Ireland, they would be our masters and we should be at their mercy. What that mercy is likely to be can be judged by Germany's treatment of Belgium. 5. During this war, thousands of Irish soldiers have upheld the reputation of Ireland as one of the great fighting races of the world. Never have Irish soldiers shown greater devotion, more splendid heroism or more cheerful courage than they have displayed on the battlefields of Belgium. Irish men, more men are wanted now. Enlist today. 
so as to become fit to join your gallant countrymen in Belgium. God save the King and God save Ireland. Four questions to clerks and shop assistants. One. If you are between 19 and 38 years of age, are you really satisfied with what you're doing today? Two. Do you feel happy as you walk along the streets and see brave Irishmen in khaki who are going to fight for Ireland while you stay at home in comfort? Three. Do you realise that gallant Irish soldiers are risking everything on the continent to save you, your children and your womenfolk? Four, will you tell your employer today that you are going to join an Irish regiment? Ask him to keep your position open for you. Tell him that you are going to fight for Ireland. He'll do the right thing by you. All patriotic employers are helping their men to join. Tell him now and join an Irish regiment today. Among the men who rushed to the colours during this period was the famous boy soldier, John Condon. Dr Jim Stacy says his story reveals a lot about the impetuous nature of the young men and boys who joined up in the early part of the war. The Condon cousins, Nicholas Condon and uh, Patrick Condon, were down in the Keys one day in Waterford and thought they would head off to Liverpool to meet their uncle. So they stowed away on the Cloja. Uh, but when they got to Liverpool, uh, they saw all these soldiers marching around and they thought it apparently uh, a good fun to join the army. So obviously it was a sense of adventure for some young lads. And uh, I suppose they never really realised what horrors were in front of them. Um, but I suppose they, they never do. Nicky was the oldest, he was the smallest. He was only about five foot eight. And uh, his brother Paddy was a year younger, and, and uh, he was very tall, he was about six foot three. But when they went out to sign up to the Coast Guards and help, I mean, they only walked down the road and went to the Coast Guards, and there were no such thing as a birth certificate or anything at that time. So Nicky told him he was going in the Navy and he was going to be a carpenter or something, I'd had to set his time in the Navy. So he took down his details, and when he turned into the next and he said to Paddy, Are you going as well? Oh, I might as well go too, Paddy said, and he was only 13. I think it's fair to say that in the First World War, uh, if you approached a recruiting sergeant and you looked old enough to fight, the recruiting sergeant probably wasn't going to ask you too many questions or ask to see your birth certificate. The reason for this, I think, or one of the reasons for this, is that the army was hastily improvised in 1914 and 15. It was massively expanded over a very short period of time. And the sort of rough, rough and ready quality control checks that were in place before 1914, which were none too rigorous, it must be said, mostly went out of the window. He is um, commemorated on a, a big memorial called Tiepfel in France. And his name is on that, but there's no no known graves. There's 73,000 names registered on it. A cornerstone of John Redmond's support for the war effort was the creation of a division of the army made specifically from nationalist Irish recruits. This was the 16th Division, which would see action throughout 1916 and 1917, 
when the British army began to bear the brunt of the war against Germany. In September 1916, they were sent to the Somme battlefield to seize the villages of Ginchy and Guillemot. They were uh, attacking a place called Ginchy, to Lake of Fairham, it's a small little place. But there were thousands of men killed there, you know. You wonder why, because when you look at it, there's nothing there, you know. Gunnery is still relatively rudimentary in 1916, and the gunners find it much easier to shoot on or fire from a straight line than they do something that's uh, more of a sort of wiggly line on, on a map. And these attacks tend to be very bloody, and it was not always evident to the soldiers on the ground why they were undertaking them, why it was important to capture Gillimore or Ginchy. Mr John Harrison, sergeant at Mace of the Waterford Corporation, has received a letter from a soldier in France stating that his son, Sergeant John Harrison of the Leinster Regiment, has been killed in the recent big push on the Somme. Sergeant Harrison, who was 25 years of age, joined the 7th Leinsters last year. He was a popular and respected young Waterford man and the utmost sympathy is extended to his bereaved parents. In a letter written by a comrade by whose side he fell, the writer stated that out of his regiment, the 7th Leinsters, only 100 men were left and that the writer was the only Waterford man remaining. The Munster Express, September 1916. Despite the increasing casualties, Terence Denman, who has written the definitive history of the division, says the 16th had performed very well. On any kind of objective view, the division performed well in most of its actions. It was only engaged for a few days in September on the Somme campaigns, uh, took very heavy casualties, but by all accounts fought very well. Um, the division had a very trying time, not only just with the gas attacks, but they were um, continually used um, in the months before on some very large-scale raids. They lost a lot of good men uh, and officers in a rather, I think, futile raiding policy to, uh, I think, prepare the division for battle and stop them uh, uh, you know, leading a quiet life. So the division went into the Somme, I think, um, quite severely tested, but by all accounts fought very well, won two Victoria Crosses, um, took all the objectives they were given and I think left the Somme with a, with a very good reputation. Um, the next major action really in June 17 was an absolute triumph um, and made even better for the division I think by the fact that they fought side by side with the 36th Division. Um, it, the taking of Messines was um, a beautifully prepared operation and the 16th Division uh, performed uh, very well in it. However, by the end of 1916, events in Ireland had started a process that would bring into question the role of Irish soldiers in the British Army. The Home Rule movement they represented was about to be eclipsed, and with it, the service of Irish soldiers on the front. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Lowe's knows you'll do it right to save on what you need to make stylish updates to your kitchen and bathroom. We do it right, too, with savings on the Delta Valdosta Kitchen and Bath Collection, featuring faucets and accessories with spot shield technology so you don't have to worry about water spots and stains. And for three days only, all new and existing Lowe's credit card holders get 10% off purchases made with your Lowe's card. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Credit offer valid 315 to 317. Subject to credit approval cannot be combined with other credit offers. Exclusions apply. U.S. only. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. 
Tell people to stay off the lawn, compare it to your neighbor's lawn, and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.